How is this even happening? We're going from the bridge on the River Kwai to this. Jumping straight from madness, madness to the horror, the horror. I'd say we have no one to blame but ourselves, but these selections were both the direct result of our audience polls. So it's really your fault that we're doing two of the greatest war films of their respective decades, arguably of all time, back to back. But you know what they say, Vox Populi Vox Podcast, so here we are. Honestly, it's not a bad thing to have these two giants as contrasting examples of not only war films, but styles of cinema in general. One of them was planned down to the most minute detail and by all accounts went off almost entirely without a hitch. The other had Fat Marlon Brando playing the war film equivalent of the shark from Jaws. I'm not going to oversimplify the matter so drastically as to claim that there are only two types of artists in the world. Artistic styles are comprised of sliding scales between polarities. Abstract versus concrete. Linear versus painterly. Rembrandt's Storm on the Sea of Galilee on the one end of the spectrum. Maud Lebowski's strongly vaginal flying naked splatter painting on the other. Now, if I were to put two filmmakers on opposite ends of the spectrum, in an ideal world, it would be Stanley, I wrote backstories for each of my palm trees, Kubrick, versus Werner, storyboards make the baby Jesus cry, Herzog. But that's a cage match that we'll have to wait for another day. Today, we get to focus on Francis Ford Coppola versus... Really, just versus Francis Ford Coppola. There's an old saying from Yankees pitcher Lefty Gomez, I'd rather be lucky than good. And on today's film, Coppola walked that incredibly fine line like a drunk at a sobriety checkpoint and pulled off the miraculous feat of being both lucky and good, while also managing to be neither lucky nor good, all at the exact same time. If that sounds infuriatingly confusing, imagine how he must have felt. It's an astonishing thing to watch a master filmmaker with such control of his craft go from the absolute top of the world, changing the face of cinema with instant classics like The Godfather Part 1 and Part 2, to slowly unraveling, dancing along the precipice of financial ruin, gluing together a movie with spit, pixie dust, and rendered water buffalo fat, and threatening suicide if one more person dares grace him with so much as an encouraging word. And, son of a bitch, still changing the face of cinema with yet another instant classic that would redefine the war film genre for decades to come. Well, maybe not an instant classic. A lot of people didn't quite know what to do with this movie when it first came out. But in the end, after all the conflict on and off the screen, we are left with a piece of art that not only stands the test of time, but just seems to get better with age. War is hell. People make films about it. And we love to talk about them. So turn up the Wagner, grab your board, and come surf some fantastic peaks with a Marine veteran, a film critic, and a theater director. As we discuss, discuss with extreme prejudice, Francis Ford Coppola's 1979 landmark depiction of the horrors of the horror of the horror of the Vietnam War. Apocalypse Now. Call it in. It's danger close.
Danger Close, a war film podcast. My name is Dan, and I am here with my partners, Katie and Liam. And today we are here to talk about our next audience request film. This finished at number one by probably close to double. A country mile. Yeah, a lot. And this is Francis Ford Coppola's surreal Vietnam War film from 1979. Apocalypse Now. And Katie's here to start us off with her mission briefing. The making of this film and its legacy is as much a story in its own right as the one the film portrays. The original concept, which was adapting Joseph Conrad's novella Heart of Darkness to a Vietnam War story, was from John Milius, inspired by a comment from a college screenwriting teacher in the late 1960s. Eventually, Coppola became involved, intrigued with the idea, and he and Milius rewrote the script together, what was to be the first of many, many rewrites over the coming years. After a long struggle to procure funding, a cast, locations, and all the other things a film needs, they finally started filming in 1976, and it went on for over 200 days, which is ridiculous. (laughs) The film wouldn't see release for another three years at the Cannes Film Festival. Still unfinished, it ran for three hours, and while it won the Palme d'Or that year, it was met with a decidedly mixed critical reception. It released to the public in August of 1979 and did very well at the box office, with over $100 million on the books by the time the run was over. Apocalypse Now was nominated for eight Oscars, but only took home Best Sound and Cinematography by Vittorio Storaro. This is likely due to the uncertainty that critics had about the film. Many saw it as a bloated mess that parroted words from greater writers to lesser effect. At the time, it felt cheesy to have Brando quoting well-known works by T.S. Eliot, and some couldn't tell if it was supposed to be comedic or serious. Something significant across the reviews, however, is that no one flat-out hated it. There was always some part that was considered very good. But Roger Ebert, as usual was most accurate in his prediction that Apocalypse Now would wind up a revered classic, despite some missteps, and that it would hold up under the test of time. We each focused on a different version of the film for this episode. Except Dan, who is a perpetual overachiever, who watched both the theatrical and the final cut, and read the novella. So, to start us off, I wanted to discuss the differences between them. This was my first time viewing the film, so I started off with the theatrical version, and Liam took on the final cut. And Liam, refresh my memory, you've seen all the versions, right? So, I haven't seen Redux. So, none of us have seen Redux. And for the audience, Redux is, I believe, the version that's on Netflix right now. Okay. Interesting. So, I haven't seen Redux. I hadn't watched this movie since I was maybe 15 years old, I think was the first time I saw it. And I haven't gone back to it for decades. I was kind of amazed at how much I remembered, but it had been so long that I don't necessarily remember what the differences were between the final cut and the theatrical release. I know that when I hear people talk about Redux or when I'd heard people talk about Redux, that that was one of the things that one of the things that they talked of with a fair amount of derision was the French colonial scene. Yes, I've heard about this at the dinner table with the French colonials, which if you just watched the the theatrical cut, you missed on. So I was a little surprised that it made its way all the way through into the final cut, since that was something that I'd always heard was a little bit disjointed and weird. It did make it into the final cut, and I was actually kind of glad to be able to see it. Interesting viewing experience this time around. I'm pretty much there with Liam in terms of last time I remember seeing this film. I was 
I must have been a kid, like late teens or something. So undoubtedly, I did not get the more surreal stuff and the bigger themes of the film. And I certainly hadn't seen a documentary or anything like that. There's a very easy way, I think, to explain the three versions of the film. Interestingly, it really matches the three main versions of Blade Runner that are available. The theatrical, the director's cut that was done 10-ish years later. And then the final cut, which was done 10 years after that, I'm kind of ballparking it. And so the first film kind of tends to take the brunt of the budget and the critics and the production. And so when a director, especially a young director, is being pressed to cut things and change this and make it shorter, they tend to fold. And that's kind of what happened in different ways with both Ridley Scott and Francis Ford Coppola. When they had the clout to come back and make a director's cut, they did just that. They re-added scenes that they liked. They slightly re-edited parts of the film. And it seemed like a closer version to what they meant to put out as the original film. And the final cut is named appropriately because in this case, Francis Ford Coppola responded to the critics who thought that Redux was... So Redux is his director's cut, basically, and that came after the theatrical. And they were saying the extra scenes were kind of bloated, messed with the flow of the film. This film is a very journey-like film. And they thought, for example, the plantation scene, the French plantation, it interrupts the journey. And so they thought if you're going to do that, it needs to be shorter. In the final cut, he went back and... For one thing, listen to the popular response and the critics criticizing Redux for being too bloated and long. And he cut down some of those scenes. But I think the thing that stuck out to me the most was that this was the first time the original negatives were scanned in a 4K transfer. That had not been done for the 4K release that included the theatrical and Redux. And so, for example, Jackie was complaining watching the theatrical on my 4K fandangle, you know, bells and whistles. And she's like, these sets look like sets. This doesn't feel like a movie. (laughs) And she thought it was the resolution. When we watched the final cut with the 4K transfer, she said that was gone. She said, this feels like the movie I would have seen in theaters at the time. You can tell the contrast has been corrected. You can tell the color has been corrected. It looks like what it's supposed to look like. Jesus Christ, it looks so fucking beautiful. (laughs) Like, it looks really good. I really appreciated the visuals more than anything else. I'll give my opinions further on the other stuff, but I think he went in the right direction, generally speaking, cutting down some of those scenes. I think he could have cut them by a little bit more. I think it could be a better film, even cut down a little further, but I really love the addition of most of the French plantation scene. Katie, this was your first time seeing it, and so we kind of decided by committee, but you agreed (laughs) that you would watch the theatrical version so that you could get exposed to the very first. What were your initial thoughts? This is another one of those movies like The Godfather that I have heard endless amount about. As we were starting it, my husband remarked to me, he's like, oh, now you'll get all those Simpsons references. I was like, (laughs) I sure will. I got most of them before. But I think this one had a lot more surprises for me. A lot more integral scenes that haven't been parodied to death the way The Godfather has. Or the tiny bits that have been parodied are actually just a small part of a huge 
huge thing. Like, for instance, the Ride of the Valkyries helicopter attack scene. You'll get little bits of that, but watching it all as a piece and especially seeing Robert Duvall's performance is just electrifying. You can see why he leads the way he does. And he's also pretty insane. And it's kind of horrifying at the same time. So, I mean, I really enjoyed it and I knew I was in for something special. This is one of those movies I haven't watched because it kind of felt like, oh, that's a special treat. I'll watch that one when I want. I want to watch a classic film. I want to watch a big one, one that I know I'm going to sit down and enjoy. And so you just kind of put it off. So I knew going into it, I was like, okay, this is going to be good. I took copious amounts of notes and it lived up to my expectations for the most part, I would say. And I think I could see how maybe... I have to watch the final cut now to know what this French plantation scene that y'all are talking about is because there's no hint of it whatsoever in the theatrical version. No, none. They completely cut it out and cutting it out is seamless. So it makes sense to watch the movie without it. When it's added in, it's an interesting scene that brings some interesting commentary on the war. I assume the French plantation is in Cambodia then? Yes. So it would be into Cambodia I believe they're they're very vague on the geography, but it's after the bridge. Mm-hmm. Right. So after the bridge, they go further upriver and they say that there's the line where he's like, it's about 75 clicks upriver from the bridge. And he says, that's Cambodia. And he says, that's classified. So I can assume they're in Cambodia. Right. But it's these people that have had this land for like 70 years. They're armed. They're defending themselves. They're not leaving. They've killed North Vietnamese, Viet Cong, Cambodians, Americans. Like they've killed pretty much anybody that tries to get them off of this land. Attack repulsed by the family. Just for this war. Viet Cong, 58. North Vietnamese, 12. South Vietnamese, 11. Americans, 6. Yes, well, well, perhaps mistake. You want to make an omelet, got to crack some eggs. But yeah, so they go there and they have this nice dinner. They bury Mr. Clean there. Okay. Because it's right after Clean dies. Okay, that explains that. Yeah, so they bury Clean. They have a nice little funeral for him. Willard has a discussion with with the patriarch where the patriarch is basically calling into question why America is even there in the first place. They're there fighting because they have this land that they've had for 70 years, and that land has been what's keeping their family together. They grew up on it. Their kids are growing up on it. How long can you possibly stay here? I wish there forever. No, I mean, uh, why don't you go back home to France? <laughs> I mean, this is our home, Captain. Sooner or later, you're going to get... No! You don't understand our mentality. The French officer mentality. At first, we lose in Second World War. I don't say that you Americans win, but we lose. In Indian Fu, we lose. In Nigeria, we lose. In Indochinai, we lose. But here, we don't lose. This piece of earth, we keep it. We will never lose that, never! Yeah, this is home. It's just this very quick rebuke of the domino theory that's just woven into this conversation where he's like, the Vietnamese, they hate China and Russia probably more than they hate the Americans, definitely more than they hate the French. What are you even doing here? You're fighting over nothing, which was something that I remembered my high school history teacher, who was a bit of a leftist anyway, saying that he was like, yeah, he was like, "If, if they had like one history teacher in the room, a history teacher could have told you that 
domino theory is bullshit because there's too much history and there's too many divisions there for like there to be just one giant communist block in Asia. They don't like each other. They don't get along. And the divisions are things that we just aren't seeing. Right. That was the meat and potatoes that I got from that scene. It's funny because if you listen to Coppola talk about it in... So I watched the movie and then I also watched Hearts of Darkness. Okay. I was hoping to get that in, but I didn't make it in time. Uh, I did watch that, Katie. You didn't add that to my list of accomplishments. (laughs) (laughs) I did not do my due diligence. Not only that, (laughs) I went back and I watched the 15-minute Animaniacs parody of Apocalypse Now. Liam's got me beat. Oh my God. If anybody remembers that, that was actually my. Yes. I'll call that my first viewing of Apocalypse Now because it's pretty fucking spot on. I would say, yeah, definitely. I know that most. (laughs) But yeah, if you watch Hearts of Darkness, the reason that scene got cut was kind of because Coppola was throwing a temper tantrum and he just got mad at the scene and just cut the whole thing out. Like it didn't look quite right or there was like budget constraints that were like weighing on his mind and couldn't get it. He just flipped out and cut the scene. Oh my God. And I was like, that is so bonkers to me that you just like very, very weird. Yeah. And it's strange because I know that for one, he went through the effort of getting all the finest stuff from France. He wanted French people to watch that scene and to notice and be like, how did he get nice crystal and expensive French champagne and like the food was all expensive. And it's because he spent a ton of money getting all that stuff shipped out there because he wanted it to look like a high class French meal. And he's like, how do you do that other than to just film it? Everything has to be right. So he had a very specific detail in mind visually. And then I think for all the colonialism stuff that's in the book. So I'm talking about Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness written Around the turn of the century, published initially 1899 to 1902 were the first few versions. Uh, He was a Polish immigrant into Britain, uh, but I think he wrote the book in English to begin with. So there we're talking about colonialism in the Congo in Africa uh, around 1900, actually earlier in the 1800s. So notoriously brutal and repressive because of King Leopold's stranglehold over that region where they pulled rubber and ivory were the main exports and basically engaged in like pseudo slavery, just not by legal terms, I think, but, you know, cutting off people's hands and just all kinds of violent, disturbing regime stuff. And so I thought the French plantation scene was the biggest connection between white colonialism and this region of Southeast Asia, which is connecting to some of the themes in the book that are more overtly there. So I was surprised for both those reasons to see him just completely cut it out because he spent a lot of time and effort and money putting that in the film in the first place. They were saying that as you go up the river, And this might be a line from the book as well, but as you go up the river, it's almost like going backwards in time. It is in the book, yes. And so that's something that they very much had in mind, I think, with this scene that the French who are living there are still trying to act like it's Vietnam in the 1950s. So I want to give our usual shout out to our researchers today who are Jim Randall did a piece on the Brownwater Navy and the PBRs. Dennis Myers did a bit on Joseph Conrad on the book on the Congo Free State. So some of that history as well as special forces in Vietnam. 
I don't think we're going to read through any of that on the episode. We will put it in the surplus ordinance for you guys, and you can read all about it there after the episode comes out. And lastly, before I forget, our pal Jeff, who usually does Danger Close Armory and does the gun posts in our group, talked about how his uncle AD did the special effects for the napalm scene in this. And I will also put that in the surplus ordinance. But uh, yeah, A.D. Flowers was Jeff's uncle, and he was a famous special effects guy. If you're on our Patreon and you've listened to our Godfather episode, you would know that he was instrumental in creating Sonny's many, many squib jacket from the assassination scene, as well as this huge A5 napalm drop where they lit half the jungle on fire. So I will throw that all into the history online. Katie is going to walk us into the film with the first act. So this is definitely a three-actor. There's some films that are questionable whether or not they can be divided so neatly, but this one, it's pretty clear delineation between. It starts off really focusing on Captain Willard. Played by Martin Sheen. Fabulously. Beautiful, beautiful Martin Sheen. He is gorgeous in this. Young, sexy Martin Sheen. Yeah, he's my age in this. He's 36. Yeah, he's one of the Sheens who's a good actor. Ooh. that, That one. You know him. You love him. The film opens with this very calm, peaceful shot of palm trees then being exploded by napalm as helicopters go by. And then it... As the doors play. As the doors play, this is the end. And it kind of focuses in on Willard's face, but he's upside down. Like, I would say the first few minutes of this film are really invested in getting you into a headspace where you can accept what's coming. It's dreamy and there's lots of blending between different shots. Willard is pretty obviously intoxicated most of the time and the famous story is Martin Sheen got incredibly wasted for the beginning of this. It was his birthday. Oh, that makes sense. It was also his birthday, but it was just him having a breakdown on camera. <laughs> yep. Yep. And he did really punch the mirror and the, the blood that he's rubbing all over himself. That's his real blood. And it's really his wang that's flopping around out there as he rolls over the bed. Man, he really gave it his all even in the beginning of the film. And it really sets you up for what's what's to come. It's before it almost killed him. Right. He certainly had a heart attack while making this movie. And Joe Estevez is also in this, his brother. Who was Joe? He takes over for Martin Sheen during some of the scenes when Sheen was uh, down with the heart attack. Oh, I didn't know. That. I knew they got a double for him, but I didn't realize it was his- heat exhaustion. Heat exhaustion was the official reason. <laughs> That's what he said. Joe Estevez is the one who came in and did it. And Coppola said that he doesn't know which one was which anymore because they do look a lot alike, <laughs> especially at this age. As they aged, it became different, but in their youth, they looked similar. Which scene in particular, or you're just saying at a certain point in filming? No, no, he just, he would fill in for him as they were doing as the like shooting. A body double. Yeah, exactly. When he was just too out of it or whatever. Makes sense. They're probably the same height and shit. They are. And like, they look super similar. <laughs> so you could shoot him from the back and you wouldn't know the difference. There were several scenes like when they start getting arrows shot at them. Yes, yes. That was one where they shot all of that scene with the double mm-hmm. because Marty was still recovering from a heart attack and had to take a month's rest. And then when he came back, then they do the, the cutaways to the close-ups of him in those scenes. But yep. the brunt of it was done with, apparently, his brother. Not to forget to mention that originally this part was cast with Harvey Keitel, who was then let go, I guess, or fired a little bit later. So I did do a little bit of digging on this. 
this because the casting process was long and arduous. Yes, it was. They originally wanted Steve McQueen, mm-hmm. <laughs> but Steve McQueen wanted $3 million, which they were willing to do, but then he, he lost interest because he didn't want to be in the jungle for that long. Mm-hmm. And then they went to Harvey Keitel after they couldn't get Redford, Nicholson, or Pacino. And after they couldn't get them, they thought Martin Sheen, but Martin Sheen was tied up doing another movie. So they went with Harvey Keitel. And then after filming for a couple of weeks, they decided that the casting was just wrong. It did not work. They really didn't seem to blame Harvey Keitel. It was more like, you know, sometimes it just doesn't gel and it wasn't fitting. And so, well, and if you listen to Coppola, the reasons that he gives are actually really legitimate reasons. This character is a very passive character through the entire movie, and he's meant as an observer, and he's meant to be somebody that the audience can see everything through his eyes and identify with. And Harvey Keitel, God love him, is a very active actor. Like, he doesn't Mm -hmm. sit back in the cut very well, you know? No. He's in there doing things, making shit happen. And the more they went, the more they realized, like, this probably just isn't going to work. We went with it because he was the best actor that we had available to us at the time. But it doesn't necessarily mean that he's right for the role. Right. Yeah. And they had had to do reshoot after reshoot after reshoot with him. And it was just not coming together. And I think that's when like kind of decided on all sides because Kaitel, from what I. It was pretty amicable. It was an it was an amicable d- divorce. He didn't feel like the right like it was the right part for him either. He was like, this is not the role that I'm interested in really playing that you're trying to get out of me. Like, I can't give that performance. And Coppola was like, fair. And I think his feelings were still like kind of hurt, but like he didn't take it too personally. It sucks, but there it is. He's still an amazing actor. He is. So the film, and here's one of the things that I kind of wanted to lace through this discussion here is the criticisms that I read at the time, because I think this was a movie for the ages rather than a movie of its time. Like we talk a lot about movies that were of their time. Mm -hmm. This is very much the opposite of that because it uses all these, these literal quotes from poems and stories basing it on the heart of darkness you know it's really laced in with that and at the time people didn't really critics at least didn't really care for that they thought that was like you're not a good enough writer to to write this yourself huh so you're just filling in okay was very judgy about it and really the only one i saw whose contemporary review really understood what was going on was roger ebert so this opening of the film really sets it up kind of like a noir that was a big criticism of the time is that this feels like a Raymond Chandler book. So we see those kind of opening shots with lots and lots of cigarette smoke and alcohol and trauma. And then he talks about the mission is coming to him. And then the mission comes to him in the form of the army soldiers. We're like, all right, buddy, let's go. I love that he was like, what are the charges? And they're like, there are no charges. (laughs) That was great. I was so enamored with Martin Sheen in this movie this time around. I was like, this is the train wreck that I aspire to be. He's a very competent train wreck. I will say that. Such a fabulous train wreck, Martin Sheen. He knows when he can just be like, all right, I'm just going to let it go. I'm just going to show off all my trauma. And when to be like, all right, I got to get my shit together and just murder this dude. Guess this is what we're doing now. So the army then comes for him and they bring him to this, to the mission. And I had some questions for you guys about Willard. He is not active in the military at this point, right? 
Like, it seemed like he was kind of retired. I got the sense that he'd finished his tour, so to speak, Mm -hmm. and was just waiting on the next thing. Like, he'd been there. He did what he did. He'd gone home. Didn't like it. Divorced his wife. Said yes to the divorce. You know, went home. Wasn't fitting in there anymore. Just wanted to get back to the jungle. And so now he's, I think, still in the military, but just not especially active. Near the end of the film, he says... They were going to make me a major for this. And I wasn't even in their fucking army anymore. Yeah, I was a little confused by that as well. So maybe somebody can write in and tell us. And he's given a choice of whether or not he's going to go do this mission. It is not, here are your orders, you're going to go do this. When he sits down to have the discussion, they're like, okay, this is this is what's going on. This is a story. Are you willing to take this on? Are you willing to go kill this guy? So in terms of the practical brass tacks of what is going on, all I can offer is my best conjecture, but I don't know this for a fact. Mm-hmm. What it feels like to me is that he either went into the reserves or like retired early and they kind of convinced him to come back in because they had shit for him to do that required his expertise. He had clearly worked covertly with special forces, sometimes in conjunction with the CIA had been involved in a previous assassination of a foreign official or something. And so there's a sense that he has invaluable experience. And that's why I think they want him to go find Kurtz. That was my interpretation as well. That's, yeah, that's that's the best I can give it. We don't know for sure. He clearly still has an active captain's uniform that fits him pretty well, and he seems to be in relatively decent shape, despite the actor's shape at the time. Yeah, I think it highlights that he has, like Liam said, gone home and kind of had a train wreck of a life back home, and he's trying to get back to a semblance of what he knows, which is the military. But clearly, he's... A barely functioning, depressed alcoholic, which fits in. Unbelievably, I had not thought about this until Katie mentioned it, but that's really cool that you mentioned film noir because like this is Harrison Ford's character in Blade Runner. And this is the classic sort of flawed hero of a noir that's a drinker and his personal life's falling apart, but he's diving into his professional life to try and get some semblance of Mm -hmm. success or satisfaction. Yeah, like he's only built to do one thing. I'd quit because I'd had a belly full of killing. But then I'd rather be a killer than a victim. This is clearly more complex. And in both cases, I swear to God, I'm not trying to make all these Blade Runner comparisons. It's just kind of there. The characters are killers. They're assassins. They're people whose job it is to kill people for a living. And you see Willard kind of wrestle in and out with that for the rest of the film. If I had a complaint with this movie, as far as like the narrative arc of it goes. Mm-hmm. The Willard that we see on the boat doesn't quite for me match up with the Willard that we see at the beginning and at the end. I mean, you never put on your game face for work after a night at the a night out? No, I I have, but I'm saying like Cuz that's the impression I got from what was going on with him and that got to get back into it. We're not fucking around anymore. I apologize. This is jumping ahead to points where like when he kills the woman on the boat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That seemed like it hit him a little harder than I think it would have necessarily hit the Willard in the beginning of the movie. Yes, but there is a transition here, Liam. I, I think for the transition of the character, this actually all fits to me. 
The first two acts, I think the alcohol consumption is a clear clue into what is going on here. So you have the one extreme, which is him getting just completely trashed to the point where he's almost bleeding to death, punching a mirror, and he has to be carried into the shower, which again, both the actor and the character did. Two, something that Katie will have missed from uh, not seeing the French plantation scene, there is a love scene tacked onto that scene, which I did not like, and I personally would not have put in the film. But he has a love affair and a night of smoking opium with this French widow that's at part of that family at that plantation. She seems like a sister-in-law or something like that. Yeah, her, her husband had died. Right. She's a lonely auntie. They're both available and warm. Yeah. This is wartime. She kind of discreetly proposes to him and he turns her down at first and then when she insists, he's like, ah, fuck it. What else do I have to do? And I'm like, yeah, dude, you're not like, you're not turning that down. Like some hot French woman, you're in the middle of the fucking jungle on some shit ass mission. And she asks, do you want to come hang out and like have some cognac and smoke some opium? But the interesting part is that a lot of that initial conversation between them revolves around his drinking. She points out you weren't having any wine at the table at, at this big, expensive, fancy French meal where they're serving probably three different kinds of wine. At least she was like, I noticed you didn't have any wine. He goes, yeah. I'm not drinking right now. And she goes, well, would you like to come back and have some cognac with me? And he's like, eh, I better go check up on my men. <laughs> and I was like, no fucking way. She drops the best argument of all. The war will still be here tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, eh, okay, I guess you're right. But then he still turns down the cognac. So then he says, normally I love cognac, but not tonight. That's what he was drinking in the very beginning. Mm -hmm. That bottle of cognac. Very expensive, very nice cognac, by the way. Nice catch, Katie. So I think it's very clear that whether it's just for the mission or whether he's trying to change his life here, he is staying away from the sauce. That's what's obvious here. He also pours it in his canteen at one point on the boat. He like dumps out his water and fills it with cognac. When he gets that free bottle from the supply sergeant, right? Yeah. I mean, you're not going to not going to waste that. Recovering alcoholic, right? It's a struggle for a reason. So, who knows, but I think that that drinking kind of explains the difference between him in the first act and the second act. In the third act, I think that it's very much especially to go from the trauma of how people are being killed in this place. And we'll get there when we get to act three to have him go all the way back to his special forces training. That's very much the arc where he's kind of dabbling in sobriety and then finding his primitive killer self that he was trained to be at the end. That's what I see in those differences. So for me, they serve a purpose. I think it might have just been how that one kill was handled that I felt like the movie wanted it to be a kind of loss of innocence. And I'm like, this is a dude who kills people for a living. Like he's, this is not his first rodeo. No, he tells us how many people he knowingly killed Yeah, in the beginning of the movie. But what makes you think that he's struggling? Because I thought the killing... Not that he's struggling, but like he's he's very decisive, but the movie treats that as a character turning point, I thought. Maybe I'm not reading that the same way everybody else does. No one knows that much about Willard on this boat. And certainly right. no one has seen him kill anybody. So you know that you get a little bit of the dialogue in the film and a little bit of probably the rumorville that's going on on the boat off screen of who the fuck is this guy? I don't know, man. He's some captain. He worked special forces or something. You know what I mean? Like they don't know him personally. So I don't know shit about him. Right. 
And so to watch, to have the film show him walk up casually and end that woman's life because he's like... I told you not to stop. Now let's go. Motherfucker, I told you not to stop the boat. We don't have time for this shit. We gotta move on. And we can't have this witness here. Exactly, yeah. We, we gotta go. Yeah, just, we're moving. I think the casualness with which he executes her is supposed to show you some surprise for the crew where like you as the audience member are like, oh, I knew this guy had done stuff like this, but I'd never like seen it in my face. And then you're like, oh, these guys have never seen anything like that probably ever. I mean, we have Lawrence Fishburne's clean character who is started filming at 14 as an actor and is supposed to be 17 in the scene. So clearly he is the kid from the Bronx that has never experienced combat. And it's he actually signed a seven year contract with Coppola for this film. And it included like one of the bait to get him to sign on was his choice of acting classes. That's how young he was for this. But at the same time, like, I feel like the shock of that scene, why are they not shocked at themselves for having just obliterated a boat full of people? But he's the one who like, she's already wounded and probably dying anyway. And he goes up and shoots her. And like, now he's the bad guy. I don't know. That scene kind of was weird for me. The next big scene that we're seeing in order in this act is he is, and I don't want to get too much into Kurtz here, but I give a little hint about how Willard is introduced to the idea of Kurtz. Because he's brought in by the general. We get to see a very young and adorable Harrison Ford. They explain who Kurtz is. They play a little bit of him reciting poetry. It's his greatest hits. Yeah, exactly. To kind of explain this is what's going on with this guy. Kurtz just dropped a new mixtape, guys. You gotta hear it. You gotta hear this nutter. Willard seems to be both intrigued and kind of horrified. But in like a professional capacity. In the like... Oh, this he's gone too far. You have broken the rules of war here by these behaviors. Therefore, I am horrified at your actions rather than like really viscerally feeling that horror. Yeah, he was a little uh, pearl clutchy. Yeah. You're like, oh, yeah. Oh, no. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Yeah, that's bad, man. We got to. That sounds that sounds terrible. Better put him down. I'd never do anything like that. <laughs> Right. And I think at that time, it's really not clear where Kurtz is at. And I think the general probably understands better than Willard does at that moment, far less than Willard does once he gets there. But I think he has more of an inkling than anybody else of this guy has progressed to this point. It's gone pretty bad. Willard accepts a mission and we start our journey along the river. No, he gets on the boat first and then they go up to meet with the air calf. Yes, and so we get to meet the lovely crew of this tiny plastic boat. Yeah, fiberglass. I think they said plastic, but... I think that's what they mean by plastic. Oh, okay. It means not metal, which for the purposes of soldiering means bullets go right the fuck through this thing. That's, oh, that's I see. kind of okay. the point. So it could be wood? No, wood would probably even be better. No, I, I mean that it's <laughs> yeah. it, it's some type of synthetic material, but it is not armored is the point. And so gotcha. you see where they up armor the boat, where it says canned heat on the, I think that's the, the 60 on the back. Yeah, I forget which turret mm -hmm. that is, because I think it has dual 50 cals and then 160. And you can see the metal armor. So that's like half inch steel plate that is often put on turrets to protect the gunner a little bit from 
at a bit of an angle so that maybe like it'll ricochet instead of going straight through that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, so this is from Jim Randall's research on the PBR. Many boats carried as much extra ammo and fuel as possible. Some up armored around the crew, guns, fuel tanks, and engines. Accepting that extra weight would slow them down, but the boats were still fast and maneuverable. If ambushed, the best thing was to get out of dodge rather than slug it out. Even though the twin 50s were a fearsome weapon, it was best to bug out. Small arms bullets would go in one side and out the other as if nothing solid was encountered. (laughs) Oh, God. So, there you have it. Goes through it like butter. Exactly. So, that's that's the setup with the uh, PBR. So that's not the boat you want to be on. No, not there. When you're going to Cambodia, when you're not supposed to be in Cambodia. Right. So are we going into Kilgore next? Yep. We have to talk about the Valkyrie assault on the village, that whole shit. Yeah, first first of the ninth, right? Yeah, which is not accurate. You can look it up in the goofs, but it's like made up unit and kind of improper numbering, which I won't bore anyone to death with here. I did find it interesting that while death from above is a real squadron motto at the time. We can, we will was the motto of the unit that they're supposed to be representing. And they swapped it out. And I was like, that's a good call. Yeah, no, that's fair. We should mention before we start talking about this scene that this is very clearly a combined writing effort, of course, based on the book, like we said, but this is John Milius slash Francis Ford Coppola. So... (laughs) Oh, yeah. This is Amelia's scene for sure. Refresh my memory. Did anybody notice? Was this an and or a, or an ampersand? In terms of uh, the credit? I believe it's an and. John Milius wrote it and then... No, he he wrote the initial draft. Like, it's his screenplay. And then Francis Ford Coppola took it and rewrote it, right? No, they he wrote the initial draft. Then they rewrote it together. Then Coppola rewrote it some more later with his input. Like, Milius was heavily involved in the writing of the film. We haven't really talked about John Milius on the show before, have we? No, this is our first John Milius joint. Mm -hmm. Cool. So John Milius is a fascinating character. I thought he was dead for a while, but it turns out he's still alive. (laughs) Still kicking. So John Milius mostly wrote and directed Conan the Barbarian and The Wind and the Lion, which I... And Jeremiah Johnson. Thank oh you. shit, he did Jeremiah Johnson? And Red Dawn. And Red Dawn. But Jeremiah, goddamn, Jeremiah Johnson, I haven't seen that in a minute. He's a kind of crazy, weird character. And if you go look him up on IMDb, the first image that will pop up is him in his early 60s, probably smiling with a vest on, and he's kind of older and overweight. And you will notice an uncanny resemblance to Walter from The Big Lebowski. That's because the look of Walter from The Big Lebowski was based on John Milius, and it is mind-boggling how similar they look. It's super spot on. Look, Larry, have you ever heard of Vietnam? You're entering a world of pain, son. So John Milius, I don't want to get too into his politics and stuff, but he feels like this sort of libertarian, loves guns, loves women, Hollywood guy. But I don't know whether I would put him in right wing. I haven't read enough about his political opinions. But the point being, he's into this like old school. He's he's red meat, not necessarily like red state. He's red meat, though. You know what I mean? Yes. And he's famous for many reasons. But one of the more famous things that he did was do the final edit on the famous USS Indianapolis speech in Jaws. So 
he didn't write that from scratch, but he's responsible for the way it's delivered in the film in terms of the writing. Oh, okay. And that is one of the most famous monologues in mm-hmm. the film. So John Milius clearly had some good ideas. And I think the easiest way to identify mostly who is writing what scene or what dialogue is if it's over the top, ridiculous, or heading in that direction, it's probably John Milius. I love the smell of napalm in the morning is clearly John Milius. And he's on the record saying, yeah, I thought that was like the first line that was going to get cut. I was just going for it. And then it ended up being in the film. But like, that's just classic John Milius. I may have mentioned it before, but if you want to see a really great documentary on his filmmaking, uh, look up Milius on Amazon Prime. It's a hour and a half, two hour documentary. It goes through a lot of his life and directing. It's great. When he first wrote the script, they were actually going to like he was talking to George Lucas about directing this. Uh huh. Because he was friends with Lucas and Spielberg. This is bonkers. Like trying to picture Apocalypse Now made by George Lucas. Lucas was all about it, too. Like, he was going to make this after he did THX and then Star Wars and American Graffiti and all of that came up. But So he eventually dropped out and Coppola took over. But yeah, Lucas was all about this. And he, Coppola definitely begged Lucas for a little bit of money after Star Wars came out because they were in such dire straits trying to fund the film. Oh, yeah. I mean, he put his house up. and Yeah, he put seven million of his own money in this project in 1970s, like Six seventy-seven money, so that's a lot. Oh, he yeah. put all that Godfather money in it. And at one point, he was so frustrated with, I think it was actually during the casting process when he couldn't get the people he wanted, he grabbed up his eight Oscars and chucked them all out the window and like broke a couple of them. <laughs> He's like, what's the point of having these if, I, if it doesn't help you make your next movie? Oh my. I mean, that's something that we've said before. I think Ridley Scott is the one who's on the record saying making a film is like a war. So you need to expect the conflict and you need to expect the strategizing and all that. So clearly this falls directly in that category, not just because of the war film topic, but because of the way the production went down to the point where you're fighting to get the US DOD military to support the film because then you know you'll get all these Hueys and stuff. And they're like, nah, we don't like this idea. <laughs> of you sending someone to assassinate. Like, the army's not going to go assassinate a colonel. They're going to go arrest him. Well, when it was Vietnam, like, everybody was still pissed about Vietnam. Not just that, but had things worked out with Lucas at the beginning, these motherfuckers wanted to go to Vietnam during the war and film this film. I don't know how the hell they thought they were going to pull that off, but... (laughs) That was John Milius wanted to... He was like, yeah, we wanted to go. (laughs) I was like, no, we're not... No. What are you? Are you stupid? Well, it's like they were probably afraid we were going to be killed. But so one of the first quotes from Coppola on this film, and it's in the beginning of Hearts of Darkness, is he's on stage somewhere in France giving like a press conference or something. Oh, yeah. This would have been at Cannes. This would have been right after this first screening at Cannes Film Festival where... Oh, he makes some statements. He would be very canceled today for making such statements. <laughs> my, my film is not a movie. My film is not uh, about Vietnam. It is Vietnam. It's what it was really like. It was crazy. And the way we made it was very much like the way the Americans were in Vietnam. We were in the jungle. There were too many of us. We had access to too many, uh, too much money, too much equipment. And little by little, we went insane. 
based on what he had to go through to make it and the craziness of the filming, I'm like, that makes sense that this felt like the Vietnam War to Coppola. So Robert Duvall as Kilgore is inspired. For anyone who's interested in in film criticism, the New Yorker article, which I often lambast the New Yorker on this podcast because they are so... Pretentious. Fucking full of themselves. Yes, yes. And hey, if I got paid to write eight cents a word or ten cents a word or whatever they get, I too would write seven paragraph film reviews filled with nonsense. Dude, I'd do that shit for free. I'm just in it for the love of the game. (laughs) Hey, man, the New Yorker pays good, good money. That's why they want nothing to do with me. Yeah, well, don't feel bad. They ain't nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. This is reminding me of that. For the New Yorker reviewer that reviewed uh, all... Everything Everything Everywhere everywhere All at Once. Thank you. I love that movie. I've seen it three times already. I've seen it once now. So good. He, like, completely missed the fucking boat on the deeper meanings of that film. I remember. And just, like, shits on it. And I'm like, you're, like, actually an idiot. Like, you know how to, like, talk about film in a review-y way, but... The New Yorker has two film critics. One of them is decent and one of them is an idiot. Oh, interesting. I didn't know they only had two film reviewers. Oh, yeah. It's a coveted spot. Is it a man and a woman? I would, like, assume that it is. I'm not sure. I just read their reviews and judge. Yeah, this is a balding dude with a beard who looks like he lives in his mom's basement and he's in his mid-50s. That's kind of the impression I got from this guy. Not to lambast his looks i'm just saying he's throwing out a particular vibe yep well and it's like an it's like a uh an avatar it's not even him it's like his avatar on the new york times of his face and shit i'm like damn they could have done a better job with this bro like reinvent yourself a little bit <laughs> veronica gang who was a longtime writer in the 60s and 70s for the new yorker and a longtime film critic she gave a it's not scathing it's very critical and gives No passes. She talks about how Robert Duvall's Lieutenant Colonel Kilgore is so similar to Buck Turgidson from Dr. Strangelove. (laughs) Best name ever. And as a real man emulating Patton, which to me says that he's doing his best George C. Scott impression. And she's not fucking wrong, guys. It's definitely a Duvall performance, but... The inspiration of the Patton in there is just so much... Or, excuse me, the George C. Scott. Colonel Kilgore was loosely based on author and syndicated columnist Colonel David H. Hackworth's exploits in Vietnam. Hackworth, born and raised in Southern California, commanded a helicopter air cavalry brigade in which pilots actually wore Civil War campaign hats and flew in helicopters with cross sabers painted on them. A very loose visual representation, but not much more than that. It's definitely his own character. And I gotta say, I love how differently Robert Duvall plays characters. You're never like, oh, Robert Duvall's just kind of being himself. Like, could not be more different than Tom Hagen. Tom Hagen in The Godfather. Right. Thank you, Liam. You're welcome. I'm there for you, man. He's a composite of several characters, including Colonel John Stockton, General James F. Hollingsworth, and George Patton, also a West Point officer who Robert Duvall knew. He is also, if you think of this movie as not just Heart of Darkness, but also the Odyssey, he's the Cyclops. 
apparently Duval reported that he was really upset that Coppola cut a scene where Kilgore saves the life of a Vietnamese baby on the beach during that battle. Oh. Because he said it added to his character depth. He added that back into the final cut. I do remember. Oh, him does he? Baby. Oh, okay, yep, good. Definitely. There is just something very primal about that performance, and I, I can see what the critic was saying about throwing that kind of energy, mm-hmm. but it was a level of machismo that I can't see even George C. Scott embodying in either one of those two roles. The shirt off, bulletproof. Obsessed with surfing. Obsessed with surfing and, you know, like the stakes. We flew in a cow. Look at the size of that fucking cow. Like, it's almost like a Danny Aiello performance. Like, can you fucking believe it? It's so over the top, but like, there's a lot of nuance in there. Even the napalm line gets truncated. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. Smells like... Victory. They cut out all of the nuance and depth from that little speech, including probably the most important line of it, which after he's just like sitting there and he says, smells like victory, and then he goes... You know, one day this war is going to end and that's it. And then he just gets up and walks away. The sad face on him and all his men is just like, oh, guys, guys. I don't know if I read sad in that. I read maybe not sad. Because it was like wistful, maybe. Yeah. Almost regretful or or lost. Prematurely nostalgic. This village assault that's filmed with the... At one point, it looks like 11 plus helicopters. I forget how many they had borrowed, but essentially because the DOD wouldn't support this film, they had to work with the Philippine army and use their pilots and their helicopters. And the Philippine president was like, okay, that's fine, but we're fighting communist rebels in the jungle or wherever right now. So if we get a call, they might just have to bounce. And this happened. Two or three times during important scenes. And I think if you watch Hearts of Darkness, the documentary about the making of this, mostly put together and filmed by Coppola's wife, there is a scene during these village assault shots where the helicopters indeed just leave. And he's like, uh, okay, that's lunch. Because <laughs> like the helicopters are gone, you know? He's like, well, you said two, not like five or six helicopters just left. I thought they just needed the two. Right. And he's got hundreds of crews standing around. All the camera people are there. Uh, the reason why you see some Italian flying around on the set is because it looks like Vittorio Storaro used his entire Italian crew, all the grips, lighting, like all those people mm-hmm. were straight from Italy. He's like, yeah, you can have me, but I imported my crew. You know, like that's <laughs> kind of what it felt like to me. And... um So you got all these amazing professionals that are getting paid and now you got to just adjust. You're like, well, we're going to have to film something. So I don't know what they did that particular day, but clearly to try and save on the budget, you got to like roll with the punches and all of a sudden your helicopters are just gone. Now question about the helicopters, uh, because most of them were Hueys. Mm -hmm. There were a couple of non-Huey that looked like other potential, like borderline civilian helicopters. Do we, do we know? Yeah. So the, uh, helicopters you see in the film are the classic UH UH-1 Huey, uh, with some variations outfitted for rockets and more armament, even though that's. And speakers. Also the speakers. (laughs) And then I don't have it in front of me, but I believe the one size down is similar to a Bell Jet Ranger. I think it's just the military version at the time. It's just like a lighter 
more scout-like helicopter. The little one you see, I believe, is called a Little Bird. I forget the official designation. People can scream at their uh, speakers and tell us all about it. But those you see in Black Hawk Down as well, or at least a very similar version, basically really light, really maneuverable, and can drop off special forces like on a roof or in some really tiny alleyway and then take off. It seemed to be used for spotting a lot in this scene where it's like, okay, I got somebody with a gun over here. Like, couldn't really bring the firepower to that place, but could find it. Yeah, very lightly armed and armored, really easy to take down, but very fast, very maneuverable and can drop off a small special forces team of probably up to four dudes in like tight spaces. Your local traffic report on the AM radio could have like had that. That's the vibe I got from that helicopter was like, yeah, except louder because it has basically an open cockpit. So good luck communicating. Do they still send the traffic guy out in the helicopter to look at things or do they just use the cameras? They still fly through SFO for sure, but they're more like a Bell Jet Ranger. Like they're more enclosed canopy with like a big ass camera hanging under the helicopter and they can just like direct it through remote control, I think. It's like, what's the traffic doing? I don't know. We have to talk to the guy in the helicopter who can look at the traffic. I'm sure they do in LA. Chopper three. Yeah. Talk to them all the time. So Kilgore's characterization in this is very specific and very directed from the use of Wagner which is that scene has now iconic in film cinema you can't do something similar to that you can't use Rise of the Valkyries without conjuring that exact image in your head it's more Vietnam prevalent I think even than Fortunate Son Mm -hmm. yeah more than CCR an actual film representation yeah you get some Wagner and it's always with the helicopters. And you see how it all makes sense within his worldview. Because it kind of feels like this whole scene comes from the perspective of Willard coming in and seeing it from Kilgore's angle. Because he's the one who says, okay, we need to... We, this is how we do things. We fly in playing this loud, intimidating music. We shoot everything off we can to seem you know bigger than we really are and he's a man who does things like as they are committing this assault look at the size of those waves you need to get ready to get in your surf gear so obsessed with surfing straps surfboards underneath his helicopter like he is just obsessed with it that's why they go there right that's how he gets convinced to go there is he's like i don't know it's pretty hairy and it's like oh got great surfing down there those peaks man and he's like wait what right why didn't you say that as soon as he found out the surfing was good everything was at your disposal right and the uh the prestige Willard kind of explains to him, he's like, this is really important. Like, I need you to help me out with this. He's like, oh, this is a big deal. Oh, okay. Okay, good. Let's end surfing. Great. You know, I think the most explanatory thing of him is when they find that enemy Vietnamese who's alive and he goes to give him water from his own canteen. And then somebody says something and he's like, what? And just drops the guy and walks away and completely forgets about him. (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah. Takes the water away. He's dropping water everywhere. I was like, oh man. And the guy's just like, I I'm dying. And he just doesn't even care. And it's such an, without using any exposition tells you so much about who Kilgore is. He's like ADD George Patton, but in Vietnam. Yeah, and steroids. He's a total flake. He's a he's a, a flake. I learned in the trivia that basically there's an old 1941 German propaganda newsreel called uh, 
in English, Attack on Crete. And it's with uh, Junkers 52 aircraft, but the inside out shots are really similar. And most importantly, Wagner's music plays in that. I'm assuming the oh. same exact piece. So clearly, Francis Ford Coppola was not about to steal from something like that and try and pass it off on his own. He's making a juxtaposition with basically a Nazi newsreel. And this is what the Germans were playing in their assault to make it patriotic. Right. This guy's so patriotic, he's putting it directly playing, blasting off of the helicopters. But it's very clear that there's a indirect reference to Nazis in the history of that scene. You know, he gets not a lot of screen time. No. But his is also about the only opposing view to war from Kurtz. Yeah. Yeah, he's the... This movie spends a lot of time talking about the horrors of war, and it's how everybody is dealing with it. The way that he deals with the horror of war is to ignore it as much as possible and focus on just creating... They're not in the war for country or to stop communism or anything else. They're in the war to survive it and to make home wherever they are. And sometimes surf. As much as possible, surf. That's part of the the thing. They they want to go out and they want to surf. They're going to have a cookout on the beach. They're going to have mass. They're going to fly in a cow to have steaks and just strum a guitar and smoke cigarettes and sit around the campfire. There's a lot of that comparison. Again, you go from what I just mentioned about old German newsreel to this, to the Vietnamese girl who runs in and drops a grenade out of her hat into the Huey and blows it up. <laughs> Kilgore's comment is so it's like you just attacked this village you're killing all kinds of people armed and unarmed but when they fight back they're the savages right like I thought that was very prominent there well it was very sneaky and underhanded of her Mm, right right she's not fighting us the way you should this is where we're moving into the second act this is where they get the boat One of the more interesting, crazy scenes is they lift that boat up via helicopter and bring it where it needs to go. That's where things really start to contract around Willard and the crew on the boat. And right before they start off on the final voyage, which is, in my mind, it's this next scene and the voyage up to proverbial Heart of Darkness, Kurtz's camp, that makes up the majority of the second act where Willard is kind of learning more about Kurtz. He's reading all the documentation that was sent to him. He's occasionally communicating with the home base and getting an idea of who this man that he's been sent to kill is. We get a little bit more of his perception on how he feels about that. But before we get there, let's talk about the USO show for a minute. Oh, good. So I was watching it last night and I was like, they did not fly in Playboy Playmates for this shit. Because like Playboy was a very different thing then. Playboy was something that lots of people read. It wasn't considered a porno mag. Like it was a tasteful thing that people of a certain a certain set always had, you know. And it was completely unrealistic. Playboy Playmates did not tour. And if they did, it was maybe one at a time. And it would never have been so dramatic that they put on the equivalent of a fucking Grammy show for these guys. Like, that is just not how it would have gone at the time. Although there was a 1965 visit 
in real life in Vietnam by Playmate of the Year Joe Collins. It is meant to be show the, in my mind anyway, it is this scene in particular is meant to show the degeneration of society that these men are going through, that they feel entitled to get up on that stage. And like, as I I started the scene, I was like, oh God, what are they doing? Those men are just going to get up there and rape those women. Like, come on, what's happening here? Oh yeah, no, it's very unsettling from the, from the beginning. From word one, you know? Even when you don't take into account that that nice lady is not Native American. Yeah, no, definitely not. But definitely those not. were the times. The playmates, if you continue on with the Odyssey allegory, are the sirens. Yes. Whereas Kilgore was the the Cyclops, they are the sirens that drive the men. Right. And throughout this, I do want to note, Willard is just the observer. He watches these men going through this. Like, we never feel like we're caught up in the hysteria over them, only that we're seeing like a breakdown as as has been a continuing breakdown of Willard's journey, which goes into hyperdrive once they hit the next set going into the river. Yeah. And and that's a good point you bring up about Willard in general, is that a lot of the performance of Willard is him quietly looking at things and his voiceover giving us Mm -hmm. what's going on in his head question for you guys is the voiceover in the final cut as well yes yes okay this is not a blade runner situation it is not and i feel like blade runner fans are a little sensitive around voiceovers because most of us hate the voiceover in the original blade runner and it was taken out subsequently how do you guys feel about the voiceover in this and how it relates to the character I think the voiceover in this is essential and pretty perfectly done. Yeah. You have a good script for it because the voiceovers were written separately, right? Yeah. So fun fact, Michael Hare, who wrote the narration just for the voiceover in this, he also wrote most of the drill instructor's dialogue in Full Metal Jacket. Oh, no shit. Not the famous insults because earlier me clearly wrote a lot of that himself, but he wrote a lot of the rest of the dialogue. And this guy was a war correspondent. He is kind of a little bit who Dennis Hopper plays. A little tiny bit of him is in that. Um, He wrote a book called The Dispatches, which was about his experiences in Vietnam. And that's he kind of based some of the dialogue on those. So the interesting thing about the voiceover and how it's written and almost as importantly, how it's performed by Martin Sheen. It really is a a very tough dynamic to pull off effectively, because what is the tense that you're going to be telling this in? And are you going to be shifting tenses a lot if you're telling it in the moment or are you reflecting back on it? Wasn't it all done as a reflection? Isn't it in the past? Not really, because, you know, when he when we wake up and he's in that beginning scene where he's like Saigon. Shit. I'm still only in Saigon. Those moments where he's reacting to something in real time, like a revelation that he's having in the moment, and either he's reflecting on it from the past and just remembering how he felt about it, or I think a lot of it is done in the present. Okay. That is a tough thing to maintain throughout and to not shift back and forth a whole lot, and if you do shift back and forth, to make it seamless. 
And I think this does it pretty well. Yeah, I agree. I think this is a rare instance of narration really being um, very well used. Well, and this much of it. And adding to that film noir theme. Like I said earlier, it's very, very noir. You know, it's not out of the ordinary for a Raymond Chandler book or film based on a book to include that narration in the beginning and, and throughout. So I think that's another aspect of it that takes us into the surreal territory of juxtaposing all these different kinds of settings and styles into one that makes up Apocalypse Now. So we get this transition into Act 3, in my opinion, when the PBR and its crew leave that last American base and everything starts blowing up behind them. The bridge goes down, they're clearly being attacked, and they're like, uh, time to get out of here. And they go from this chaotic war situation from the Kilgore Valkyrie assault to the USO show to the time they spend at this American base to moving further downriver and all of that disappears in the mist and they are just on their own moving into Cambodia. Yeah. And that, that scene at the bridge I think is the end of act two, but it also does transition beautifully into act three because that shit got real bleak and real chaotic real fast. And it definitely feels like the last stand of, any kind of structure or order. Well, and this is that you're talking about the scene where uh, the the chief dies, no, right? No, I'm talking about the the scene at the uh, at the bridge at night when them looking they, behind them with everything exploding and the bridge getting taken out before they move upriver. It's the one where we meet Roach. Okay, the Roach, the guy who can just hear where the Viet Cong guy is dying and saying "fuck you, GIs." He can just listen yes. to it and. And it was, man, it's, it's very creepy and very ethereal and really, really affecting. You know, there's, it's the, the, the classic line. It's like, who's your commanding officer? I mean, he's like, ain't you? Right. Um, but then he asks Roach, he was like, do you know who's in charge here? And he just goes, yeah. And then like walks off <laughs> and it's just like, oh my God. <laughs> it's like, did you find the CO? There is no fucking CO. Right. Yeah. We're just trying to survive. And I think for me, the the third act really, there's kind of this transitionary period, and that's part of it, which, like you said, ethereal is the word for it. The scene where they go through the folks shooting arrows, mm-hmm. and then the spear takes out the chief, and there's that crazy conflict between Willard and the chief where he is dying and trying to impale Willard on his, the spear that's gone through his own chest, and for me, the the transitional point is when Willard explains to the two remaining men on the boat, Chef and Lance, okay, this is what I'm doing. I'm going to go kill this guy. And he is prepared to just strike out on his own. And Chef is like, nah, man, let's do this. And at this point, Lance seems to have deteriorated into something kind of childlike. Like, he doesn't really say anything and just wanders about throughout the rest of the movie. Both the character and the actor on at that point, we're on a lot of drugs. A whole lot of drugs. Sam Bottoms admitted that he was taking LSD and weed and, you know, so he was pretty high. He's like, yeah, no, at that point I was doing speed just to stay awake. I can imagine. I, it's It was a stressful shoot, to say the least. So that happens. They all agree, like, okay, man, we'll go. We'll help you. We'll do this. But we got to do it on the boat. 
I think this transition scene and then the landing of the boat amongst the natives, which we'll talk about in a second, because the cinematography deserves its own mention in this film. The main connections between the novel and the film are more of theme and feel than they are in direct correlation, even though they use some lines and some of the scenes and, you know, it does follow it loosely. Here's Conrad on them getting to the further, deeper, darker interior of the jungle. Going up that river was like traveling back to the earliest beginnings of the world, when vegetation rioted on the earth and the big trees were kings. An empty stream, a great silence, an impenetrable forest. There's a great aerial shot, I can't remember exactly where it is, where they pull back and they're up pretty high and you can see the river snaking through the jungle and then you can just see the patrol boat as it's taking one of the turns and you're like, oh, wow. As I, as I put it in my notes, they arrive at some kind of pale, sacrificial, insane murder park. That was my impression upon you see the boat coming and there's just that row of indigenous folks all mud white. It looked like the unofficial prequel to the island of Dr. Moreau at this point. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. I mean, I would just call it the land before time, generally speaking, because it feels like Moreau is where, again, you have crazy Marlon Brando and he's painted white. (laughs) Yes. Oh, Brando in that movie. Jesus. Look at yourself. I understand that I must be shocking to you. That's a DCE. Um, (laughs) And then they go in and there's this period of transition from the regular jungle to like death jungle where they just see scores of skeletons and Mm. skulls all very artfully placed with like skull altars just sitting there yep displays of blood and bones and that's when willard starts talking about like it's like the this the sign from the wizard of oz i'd turn back if i was you yes he kind of cements his purpose i feel like because that's when i think that's the scene where you see him he's realized okay we're get we're almost there and he started destroying the documents Mm And it's at that point where it feels like it really enters into being the most surreal and the most grounded for Willard's character. Because he has kind of shed all of these ideas and is just really dialed in on how the fuck am I going to handle Kurtz. Once they get there, I feel like, and maybe I'm alone in this, but I feel like there's this kind of back and forth pull Everything trying to suck Willard into this surreal world. You know, they get there, they meet the crazy photographer, Dennis Hopper, and he sees the man, What? what's the guy's name, who, who was sent to do his job? Colby. Colby. Where he sees Colby. Scott fucking Glenn. I haven't seen Redux. I hope there's more with that character that got cut out somewhere. I was thinking the same thing when I was watching the final cut because he doesn't even have a line. And I was like, man, I love Scott Glenn. He plays the FBI supervisor in uh, Silence of the Lambs. So he sees Colby and you can kind of see him like Martin Sheen's acting in this is just perfection. He says his name and you can see him go through this realization that like, well, this man is gone. And he kind of has to digest that immediately and then continue on into this highly, highly stressful environment because... Because they bury him in mud. Yeah. That, like that scene where they like pick him up and the camera keeps turning. Yep. Oh, and the camera keeps rolling. I thought that was cool. That was like some great... I don't always like shit like that, but in this particular instance, like that worked really, really well. Well, he only uses it once. That's the key. 
you use it once. Just the one time and it didn't feel showy. It really did immerse you in this cesspool of mud that they were trying to drown Martin Sheen in. And you're like, man, can you imagine them trying to do that to Robert Redford? Yeah, no, he wouldn't have stood for that. But in the same way that if you've seen both Hereditary and Midsummer have a moment where the camera goes a full 360 degrees. And in Midsummer, it's when they are driving into the village and the camera goes fully around the car as they're coming in. And that is a, a transition point because immediately once they arrive there, they start drinking mushroom tea and all that and shit goes wild. And that's... Yeah what this feels like like he is being forced into this society in the only way this society can accept him because they kind of know what he's there to do but kurtz is just like eh, it's my time i guess yeah and the transition into this small society that is living in the jungle starts off with that baptism by mud he then meets the photographer who is, as far as I could tell, just babbling incoherently the entire time. I mean, what are they going to say, man, when he's gone, huh? Because he dies when it dies, man. When it dies, he dies. What are they going to say about him? What are they going to say? He was a kind man. He was a wise man. He had plans. He had wisdom. Bullshit, man. Am I going to be the one that's going to set them straight? Look at me wrong. He's not, though. I love I plenty of baggage with Dennis Hopper, but I love this performance. And I think that Brad Pitt, somewhere along the line, probably owes him royalties for his performance in 12 Monkeys. I'm, I'm just going to say it. That's that that them's are facts. Spill in the tea. <laughs> but it actually kind of makes a little bit of sense if you watch it. It makes more sense than whatever the hell Marlon Brando's saying. Like, he is a very apt translator for what Marlon Brando is rambling about. Fair. Yeah, because I was going to ask you about that because I get that the audiences at the time would have had a different connection to the poetry that's being read. Regardless of the critics' opinions, they may have recognized some of the poetry or some of the authors. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. This would have been, like, really well-known at the time of release. But due to a combination of my own literary ignorance and the time period, I didn't have a connection to any of that stuff. And so I will agree that if I'm comparing Dennis Hopper's dialogue slash monologues to Brando's as Kurtz, you get more of how the photojournalist is feeling and his reverence for Kurtz, etc. So there is, he does make some points in all that mess of poetry and other things that he's saying, but I definitely felt like most of Kurtz's monologues are babbling nonsense, like 75% of it, maybe. So I wanted to know how you guys felt about that because it's fine. He's a crazy person. So I don't really have a problem he that he sounds kind of crazy, but I, I don't know. I guess we got to, <laughs> we're going to have to lean into Brando at some point. But yeah, what did you guys think in general of? I, I agree that Hopper is the mouthpiece for Brando's Kurtz. He brings them and, and tries to synthesize these ideas that he hears while also being obviously fucked up on all kinds of substances and just being a crazy person in general who's willing to, as he says, he's been to Laos where there was a secret war, not not that secret, but secret war going on, Cambodia, Vietnam. This has been his life. You know, He's wearing like four cameras at once. 
we kind of get this perspective that he is the American there who understands as much as anyone can what's going on. And so he kind of gives Willard like the rundown. And he's still connected to American society in a way that in a way that Kurtz and Colby are no longer reachable. No, it's almost like the knowledge, like that, like that understanding either drives you insane or you have to be insane to understand it. And if that's a comment on the war in Vietnam, possibly, but like the guy who's seen it all is now driven completely mad. I want to be clear about this here. I don't think that Hopper's character is mad. I agree. I think that he is a representation of the counterculture that did their best to come and, you know, like he's a Hunter S. Thompson who was a war correspondent type thing is how it feels like he's supposed to represent where he's already expanded his mind to the use of LSD and mushrooms and whatever. So he's more open to these kinds of things than the usual like military man is going to be. But He's also not fully invested in the way that he's like, yeah, he told me if I took another pick, another shot of him, he'd kill me. But you just got to chill out, man. You just got to wait and he'll be cool. It's fine. I thought he almost like had more respect for him for saying that like there was this reverence when he's like, oh, he said he was going to kill me. Oh, yeah. Oh, totally. But it's. Oh, yeah. Like I'm 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 in. I'm in. I'm in the big time now. I'm worthy of being killed. Yeah, clearly he also admires Kurtz. Oh, yeah, totally. And you get this weird dialogue kind of strung in and out of these initial scenes, which we do have the first meeting with Kurtz, and then Willard gets locked up or tied up. Both. Locked up, then tied up. And then they deliver Chef's head into his lap. I don't know what kind of Shabari-ass bullshit they were pulling with him in that. I was like, you guys are cruel. I have never seen a tie like that. (laughs) It is under his neck and around. And like, if he shifts, like, I don't know if anybody else noticed that, but that's totally what's going on is he is like this waxed cord. Because at first I was like, did they use barbed Mm. wire? But that would have been too crazy even for them. But it's a waxed cord that's very thin and is tied around different parts of his body that as he moves, it is shifting the weight of the of the cord on Oof. him like in Shibari. Probably cutting into him. Oh, sir. I'm so sorry. That looks awful. And I have to say, I Chef might be my favorite character in this movie. How interesting. I can see it. And I was really bummed out when he got his head cut off. Like, you know it's coming because he's going to call in the airstrike. Right, right. And and Kurtz knows that. And you knew he wasn't getting that off. I personally found Frederick Forrest's performance as chef as not very subtle. I feel like he was doing the same two things the entire film, and he's either yelling out of anger or yelling out of a... He's mostly yelling throughout the entire film. I don't know. I had a kind of a hard time with that character because... I felt they should have shown a little more range for him instead of just constantly yelling. Clearly, Liam felt differently. He's yelling at at every moment that he's not talking about food. And I do love that. Yeah, I feel like that's his... He has devolved. It was maybe two notes, but I also... I know people who are like that. He is a character that is written... By John Milius. (laughs) That's what I think. I mean, Kilgore and Chef, I think, are the most 
John Milius characters in in the film. He's a character. You know how we talk about how like, oh, this guy speaks like he's from such and such a time period. I needed more of this kind of dialogue in Danger Close Battle of Long Tan. It was just something incredibly mundane mid 70s about the way Mm. he expressed himself, the word choices what he chose to yell about, how he chose to yell it. It's like he's just a regular dude going out there from that time period who's just trying to fucking make it. And he just wanted to cook. He just wanted to be a saucier. And he's instead about to be about to be eaten by a tiger and that really freaked his shit out. And I get it. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. He was also high for a lot of it. Yeah. And you yeah, could tell. I, I love Chef. And I, I love Chef, especially when they had the conversation about like, hey, this is why I'm here. And he was like, oh, that's some Vietnam bullshit mission. That's fucking typical shit. Fucking Vietnam mission. I'm short and we got to go up there so you can kill one of our own guys. That's fucking great. That's just fucking great, man. Shit. Yes. Oh, <laughs> I think that might be my favorite scene where he just freaks out. Like, are you fucking kidding me? Just it's like, sir, I get it. So Kurtz. Kurtz is based on a real person, kind of. It's based on a real person who had some weird similarities in his activity, but it's not a straight up one for one, right? Yeah. So Marlon Brando's Kurtz character is based partially on the ivory trader from the book Heart of Darkness, also named Kurtz, as well as Australian Colonel Barry Peterson, also known as the Tiger Man of Vietnam, who was an Australian army advisor in Vietnam to the CIA worked with the Montagnards based on the concept a little bit, working closely with the natives and the CIA kind of figuring out that he had developed a personality cult and wanting to get rid of him. But in real life, they basically just convinced him to leave instead of having him killed, which is clearly the biggest point of contention the military had with this film is that the military would sanction the killing of one of their own in this situation. I don't know. The CIA did a lot of effed up stuff, so I don't I don't really know <laughs> exactly. if that's true or if that's just the you know, the military didn't want that out there in public. Speaking of Vietnam, Agent Orange, all right? They did a lot of shit. But I think Kurtz is supposed to be like this twisted heart of the movement. Like a man who has been so deeply embedded, because throughout the film, we learn more and more about Kurtz's backstory. You know, he was a regular soldier with an appointment at the Pentagon, who then gave all of it up in his like mid-30s to become a special forces person. So we see Willard's respect for him grow, but also his wariness. Yeah, we hear a lot about how successful a career Mm -hmm. Kurtz has had. In my opinion, too much. Like, that's some of the voiceover I could have honestly used with half as much of it is like, okay, we get it. Yeah, this guy's amazing. Went to jump school when he was 38 after being denied twice. Okay, got it. Like, <laughs> I think they were they were hammering that one home a little hard. But. Well, and I think for me, the ending of the film was forecast in that first meeting between Willard and Kurtz, where they baptize him in the mud, bring him into Kurtz all tied up, and Kurtz is laying on the bed. And I think... I haven't read the shorts, or I, I haven't read the novella, but I am familiar. Um, in the book, Kurtz is dying of malaria, correct? Uh, yeah, he's definitely dying of disease. So they kind of use that in this without ever 
acknowledging it because he's laying down a lot. He's very like sick. And that was all because Brando's much fatter than Coppola wanted him to be. And that I think is my one big complaint about the film is what could this film have been if Brando had been in shape? Well, in Brando, part of it was Brando didn't like he said he was going to lose the weight and then came in weighing even more. Right, right. And was embarrassed. And didn't read the book and didn't know most of his lines and threatened to quit a bunch of stuff. And also to keep his money because they gave him a million dollars in advance. Yeah, he threatened to keep it and leave. So I have a question about Brando. He's, especially in this film, being about the biggest prima donna you could ever possibly be. You are not fulfilling your commitments. You are not doing your job and you're entirely relying on your reputation and the fact that there's a sunk cost here of a million dollars that you're threatening people with to where he kind of just wanted to walk on set and do whatever the fuck he wanted. And Francis Ford Coppola had to, while they were on set, would have to read him Heart of Darkness out loud because the guy had refused to read it. And, you know, the one thing that does come across the most is kind of the feel and theme of this Kurt's character, which you would need to read some of the book to really understand it. So... Why is it that Marlon Brando bitches about Burt Reynolds and calls other actors narcissists and about how people are too into themselves and unprofessional, but that he could pull this shit off and not be self-reflective at all about it? What do you guys think about that? Because it really sticks out to me. Well, I think Brando's crazy. <laughs> like the man was insane at this time? Yes. Okay. I think he had been insane for a long time. <laughs> It's funny, but it also jokes aside, like he was a pain to work with on on the waterfront back in 1954, I think, mm -hmm. where he would miss he'd miss shooting days because he was in therapy and stuff like there was he had a long standing issues, I think that he was never easy to work with. He was never easy, easy to work with, but he was the best actor in the world at the time. So like people just kind of went with it a lot of times. I mean, you know, there was a lot of question about was the studio comfortable with him playing the Godfather? You know, it was he had a definite reputation of being difficult to work with. This is, I think, when everybody decided that he was not worth the trouble anymore. It is. Absolutely. Yeah, this is this was where he kind of spent the last of his capital was on making this film. The one place in this whole thing where I'm team Brando is it's great if you want to go ahead and read the book to get a better understanding of this character. But that should be in the script. That should be in the director's toolbox to like the director should understand the character and then be able to talk to the actor about it. Like that's an actor director kind of thing. Like don't make the actor do your homework. Hmm. I think. Yeah, I agree. There's no fucking reason for you to make somebody to, to read the book to somebody on the set. Like that is shitty to me. It's like, you didn't read the book. Well, sit down. Cause I'm going to read it to you now, mister. It's not fucking kindergarten. You wanted him to know something about the character, put it in the script. Now, if he came in and had never read the script, well, tough to do because they were also sort of like rewriting around his craziness, but they didn't really have an ending anyways. No, no, that was a huge criticism of this film. And, and I mean, during the process, the, he just, the the ending was escaping them when Milius and George Lucas were going to be making it. There was going to be a whole thing with the Viet Cong coming and like Kurtz and Willard fighting it out with the Viet Cong together. And like, no, oh, that would have sucked. Yeah, it would have been terrible. 
but yeah, I just feel like that's petulant. Like you just, that feels like a power trip kind of thing. Like you just didn't do the thing that I told you to do. I'm going to mad about it. Wow. You somehow just turned this criticism train from Brando to Coppola. Interesting. In in this one aspect is like, it's, it's famously well-documented what a piece of shit Marlon Brando was to work with on this movie and how he made it more difficult and threatened to take his money and go home or take his money and just not show the fuck up. But that's such a stupid thing to get hung up on. Well, he, I told him to read the book and he didn't like get fucked. Sorry. That's my, that's my take on that. Wow. Okay. I think Brando stumbled through this expertly. And I think that's kind of the case with Brando in general. Numbers go make it fucking work. Who cares? That's kind of what I feel about Brando is, and I've seen this with other actors. Brando is the kind of actor who dives into the character and just blasts everyone. This is my performance and fucking deal with it type thing. Like he is fully engaging with this character, this persona and trying to embody it. And when you do something like this and and he was even way back streetcar named desire like he plays very very intense characters like i cannot think of a marlon brando performance that is not super intense guys and dolls uh, i haven't seen that that's probably why but that how early is that that was oh shit what year was that i don't know they still were trying to get brando to sing is that pre-streetcar so. no that was post streetcar oh, streetcar okay the streetcar was his big coming out party he would not have gotten guys and dolls without streetcar and probably on the waterfront but he's he is just a, that kind of performer and i can see why you would want that for kurtz i think he works really well as kurtz because he's so over the top and particular despite i think his own physical limitations impairing his performance and i'm not gonna judge anybody for not making body changes that they don't and or can't make whatever that's not a thing it's more he gives his best in this and i think it works but i also think that that type of shit should absolutely not be tolerated on the set today so it's conflicting you know I almost feel like we don't get enough of Kurtz, but also we get almost too much. Like we get so much of his, I won't say drunken because he's not drunk, but it feels drunken ramblings. He's intoxicated. Yeah, we get a lot of him snacking and reading poetry. It's a lot like the Orson Welles, Paul Masson wine commercial. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> it's a lot like that, guys. And I think it's, I think it's supposed to be. One, two, take one. With overlap, action please. Action awesome, please. Can you just do anything? No, it's a, sorry, cut. 102, take two. Ah, the French champagne has always been celebrated for its excellence. 102, take three. Action please. Ah, the French. Champagne has always been celebrated for its excellence. There is a California champagne by Paul Masson. Both of them had what I like to call crazy fat old man syndrome. <laughs> oh my God. I, I don't even know. I've never heard this phrase, but I agree 100%. Crazy fat old man syndrome. Yeah, it's, you know, Orson Welles, Marlon Brando. 
I feel like probably George R. R. Martin is getting there. I have I have high hopes for uh, for Leonardo DiCaprio. He's getting a little jowly. Oh yeah, man. Oh man, I can't wait for him to get it. He's got that obsession with twenty four year olds. Gender aside, Liza Minnelli had crazy fat old man syndrome. Like definitely, you know, Liz Taylor a little bit towards the end of her life. Just like some real crazy fat old man syndrome going around for people in this period. But yeah, like that's. I draw a one-to-one comparison with the Palmas on Wine commercials from Orson Wells and Marlon Brando's performance in Apocalypse Now. I think that's fair. Yeah. I'm going to just disagree subjectively with Liam here. I totally respect your opinion as an actor and director on what you think about what should be written and what shouldn't. But I will say that in the net experience of knowing the making of it and watching the performance, what sits out with me is how much all the other professionals making this film had to be more professional than Marlon Brando. And so they pulled together this Kurtz performance, but a lot of it is resting heavily on the cinematography, the lighting, the editing, and Martin Sheen's performance at the very end. Oh, I'm I'm totally nodding along with you. Yeah. My question is, did he make everybody read Heart of Darkness? Did... Robert Duvall have to read Heart of Darkness. That's the that's kind of my sticking point. And that's really the only criticism I have in that in that instance. Fair, but I will say coming out of the book freshly today <laughs> is that Kurtz is such a larger than life character throughout the entirety of the novella because many people are talking about Kurtz. Mm-hmm. And then you get a certain amount of dialogue from Kurtz and a certain amount of screen time, quote unquote from Kurtz, but a lot of it is just different people's rumors and what they've heard and opinions and all that. So I don't want to argue about this. I can totally see how a director can choose to deliver this information more skillfully to an actor and filter it down so that he can get the performance that he wants based on what he has read in the novel, but he doesn't necessarily need the actor to read it. I totally get that point, And it's fair. Yeah, like three days of table work with an actually finished script. You don't have any of these fucking problems. Sure. But I think that the epic scope and the problems and everything that Coppola had to deal with in this production, he kind of like needed a little help there. I think all I'm saying is that I don't think Brando was the only crazy one in that, in that discussion. All right. Well, fair enough. But yeah, I just wanted to highlight that while the cinematography is phenomenal in this film in many, many shots, and I think the editing is really well put together, especially at the beginning, you throw the doors in there. Some of the transitional fades between shots are just, you know, his eyeball and the fan at the beginning and fire and all that kind of stuff. Kurtz's face with some of the statues faces in the temple. All that stuff is amazing. Those final scenes with the the transitions between the statue's face, Kurtz's face, Willard's face, as they're yeah. floating away. Like I found myself many a time not even giving a shit what Kurtz was saying for the most part, especially when he's reading poetry, because I'm just like stunned by the just watching the scene. And I'm like, whoa, when when he's rubbing his head and rubbing water on his head and his face and his hand come out of the shadows and it just looks like a disembodied hand and a face Mm -hmm. that is just incredible. And it's fabulous. And it's something you wouldn't have gotten if you had an actor who knew what the fuck they were supposed to be there doing in the first place. (laughs) Right. You needed a kind of half crazy person who hadn't read shit to really pull that up. You wanted Brando for this. You got Brando. And you, and you got him. 
over in the land of Fright Pub, we have a we have a, a phrase that we call jokering a movie. It's something that my dear friend Shaggy does when he thinks that he's watching one movie that he has made up in his head. You're watching a movie, something jumps out at you, and you start to almost have a conspiracy theory in your own mind about what movie you're actually watching, and it's not what the movie they actually made was. And this happened to me while I was watching this one because of the 4K. Okay. The cut on Martin Sheen's face Mm. is healed, and there's a scar in the beginning scenes. Okay. And then... later on he has the cut on his face but it's already like it's not a fresh cut it's just there and then later on he has a band-aid over it and then the band-aid comes off like that and then he has the cut for the rest of the movie but it's already healed in the beginning oh shit and i see i see where you're going here and the opening scene with that weird ass montage of the trees blowing up and the ceiling fan and the helicopters Mm mm-hmm one of the images we see is him when he's killing Kurtz. Oh, fucking, how did I miss this? And the pillars with the faces in them are also part of that. And he hasn't seen those. Oh, and he hasn't it, been Liam. covered in mud to kill Kurtz. I don't know if this is just, is this his Groundhog Day? We don't know what his last mission was. Whoa. And I swear to God, it was probably a continuity error. And they just kind of said, fuck probably. it. And you wouldn't have noticed if it, if it hadn't been restored in full 4K. But? But that fucking scar was on his face in that meeting with the general and Harrison Ford. That's a, that's a Kubrick thing right there. That's a Kubrick. It is listed as a goof. And also, I read somewhere that this was the film that had the highest number of errors of any film ever. And it had eight pages of goofs on IMDb, which is not the record from what I've seen. So I was like, okay. There's continuity stuff all over the place in this. Things that change, disappear, reappear. So it could just be that. But that is an interesting and cool theory. So, and also full disclosure, I got really, really drunk when I watched it the first time and ended up having to call Dan crying afterwards. Then the next day, I went back and I watched the second half that I was a little blurry on. Watched that again. And then I was like, I should probably try watching some of the theatrical version. So basically what I did was I watched the end, then looped it right into the oh, beginning. Like I'm listening okay. to the wall. Nice. Nice. And like when you do that and you listen to the wall, you hear the end and it's like there's the, the you hear the hidden messages, man. <laughs> and it really, really kind of fucked with my head because I was like, why am I seeing Willard about to kill Kurtz in this scene? Why is that face there? Like. Some weird shit pops out when you watch the movie like that. I see it. And I don't know if it was all on accident. I think so, but I think your alternate theory is very cool to think about. I think so, too. So... We're going to talk about the water buffalo? I guess we have to talk about it. Yeah, I, I want to have a brief moment about the water buffalo to give that poor animal its due. Rest in peace is the water buffalo. Oh, God. I feel like you kind of know the end from first 15 minutes of the movie. You know Willard is going to kill Kurtz. Like, you can see it's coming. Both Willard knows it. Kurtz knows it. Everybody seems to know that that's what's happening. And and I know this isn't how the book ends, but it makes more sense in the book because Kurtz is already dying of illness. Whereas in this, that's never really mentioned. Like, he coughs, but it's never brought up that he's sick or anything. Well, they do say it smells like slow death. It does. Malaria. Malaria right? and something else. I can't remember what the but third that's, thing But that's is. not enough in this movie. you got to fucking say it. Like, this is not... The, 
this may be a surreal implied movie, but that's the kind of thing you... It's also a time travel movie, and they never said that out loud. So. I guess. I guess. <laughs> He's stuck in a loop where he can see the future. Oh, my God. Oh, God. That would be terrible. <laughs> Liam, this isn't DC. God damn it. <laughs> the, the scene with the water buffalo juxtaposed with Willard killing Kurtz. Uh, first of all, that shit's real. They actually kill that buffalo like you see in the movie. The Animal Humane Society, not happy about it. Yeah, they gave this film a unacceptable. Uh, not approved rating. Unacceptable. <laughs> unacceptable rating, yes, thank not, you. Not okay. Well, and that was the uh, that was a ritual that Coppola's wife saw those folks do. Coppola and, and his wife. Both of them saw it. Well, she went to get him. And that's why they, yeah, exactly. That's why they incorporated yeah. it. And and it's... She saw it and she was like, Francis, you got to see this shit. Like, what's going on? He's like, can you guys... Can you guys do that again tomorrow night at 8 p.m.? This is a this is a ritual, like a very important ceremony, right? Are you doing it again tomorrow? Can I film it? Like- <laughs> right, because I'll buy I'll buy the water buffalo for y'all if y'all need it. But you know, we see, um, and this is one of the times where uh, they used a double for Brando because he is not that tall. He's he's not a super mm-hmm. tall guy. But in the scene where the water buffalo is being led down the stairs or whatever, which cows don't go downstairs, so. I don't know what that's about, but anything can go downstairs if you push hard enough. <laughs> I guess, I guess. I mean, you see the brand. Obviously, it's supposed to be Brando standing there, and he's he looks superhuman. He's so big, and that's because they employed a double actor who was much much taller than Brando to kind of oh, and not as fat. I did notice that he didn't have a big old giant belly. I was like, wait a minute. Yes. They tried to bu- get an actor who was tall and wide enough that you could kind of like mm-hmm. fudge it a little bit that Brando right, he had a belly, just not a brand. Right. Belly. Exactly. And, and for a guy that size, probably not that much of a belly. But when you're, you know, I think he was he was well over six and a half feet tall, like mm-hmm. a little gut on a six and a half foot tall person looks like a much bigger gut on a smaller person. As I am proof of. Yes. When you're this tall, there's a lot of real estate. You can spread your chips all over the roulette table. <laughs> Perfectly proportional. So, how did you guys feel about the end? Is the end different in the final cut, by the way? Not really. The oh, the good. theatrical release... How did your version end, Katie? Does he just sail off on the boat? Do, do the credits play over a black screen? Nope, there are no credits. He kills Kurtz. He... Walks through the sea of bowing people, grabs Lance, gets into the boat, and they go, they float away, and everything just goes to black. Just fades to black. So, yes, that is, that's how it plays out in the final cut as well. They shot footage at one point, because they had to tear down the set anyway. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So they blew it up. Yep. I remember reading about this. Spectacularly. Uh, you can see the footage on YouTube, but when they did the initial, I guess like the second run at the movie theaters, when they went from 70 millimeter, like the big yep. to do down to the 35 millimeter. Yeah. Cause they only premiered it in eight screens. I think it was with the 70 millimeter. Cause nobody had the capacity mm-hmm. with the 5.1 surround sound. That was a huge thing that we just didn't get a chance to talk about was that the surround sound in this is fucking like oh it's amazing revolutionary epic awesomeness so and uh and when they did the the smaller print they had the images of them blowing up the kurtz compound behind the credits oh i see and here's the thing is that is not what that's supposed to be 
Coppola's clearly stated. So that he added that scene in and he heard that audience and interpreted that as someone Willard calling in a an airstrike. That is not what that's supposed to be. That is why he went in and removed it because he was like, well, and he thought it was thematically inappropriate because they we have the killing of Kurtz juxtaposed with the water buffalo, which reminded me a lot of the killing of the five families juxtaposed with the baptism from the Godfather. Oh, right. Right. So so is the actual idea because I'm still confused about the actual intent intention here. Is the actual idea that Willard rigged the place with explosives before he left? No, no. So what is the idea? He didn't want that really to be shown. He's just supposed to look cool. They, he had the footage, so he thought it'd be... F- okay, but narratively, what the hell purpose did it serve? It did not. It didn't serve any narrative purpose. That's why he removed it. Then, yeah, that was a dumb idea. If he When they were initially filming this, or like in earlier versions of the script, up until pretty much they shot it, there was the strong idea and possibility that Willard was just going to take the place of Kurtz and be the new Kurtz after he killed him. Mm-hmm. In a very like Chronicles of Riddick, you keep what you kill sort of ending. Coppola has said that he wanted a more, an idea that like maybe this wasn't an unbreakable cycle. That, you know, he would instead come out, put down his weapon, all the Montagnards would put down their weapons, he would grab Lance, and they would leave to hopefully a brighter future. Right. Man, I feel like the rest of the film is a lot more cynical than that. And I feel like that kind of clangs a little bit. Mm. Yeah. I would see it as like he sails off, but then like the CIA comes and napalms them anyway. That's what I was thinking. It would would make sense to me, but he has his absolutely own ideas that are different from mine. I see it as Willard is our connection to this story and he comes in and out. And when he leaves... He is making the choice to not follow in Kurtz's footsteps and to make his own life. And he brings Lance with him because he's like, no, sweetie, you don't belong here. Come with me. Let's go. And as he does it as like a like you would a, a lamb or a puppy or a child, he brings him along to try to find something better. Yeah, I, I personally don't really like the way the ending is edited. I really think that. And I'll talk about this end line a little bit in my breakdown, but because the film ends with the horror, the horror anyways, I think the film should just end on the first dropping of that line and not on the second one and cut out everything in between. The death of Kurtz could easily be the fade to black moment at the end of the film. And I think the film is long enough and says plenty with just that and then doesn't have to delve into whether the ending is going to be positive or cynical. You make up your own mind what happened to willard afterwards did he stay did he go did he replace kurtz did he make it back to did they kill him for killing kurtz his life or more missions did they kill him i think ambiguity would be a better ending there that's just my personal opinion but i tend to lean that way i don't think you're wrong on that and now it's time for the breakdown where we talk about what was the objective of this film was it on target and did we like it Liam? Huh. Well, man, this is this is going to be a, a tough one to say concisely, but I'll do my best. The objective of this film, point of order, is this the first real Vietnam War film? I mean, there was probably like a John Wayne one 
Isn't John Wayne's The Green Berets about Vietnam? Yeah, but that's kind of like, that was like... That's earlier. This was kind of considered like the first big film about Vietnam. From what I could tell reading my the critical reviews and, and the retrospectives. Yeah, I mean, it definitely, if nothing else, like set the tone for Vietnam films. Like, there was not going to be another John Wayne Vietnam film after this until maybe we were soldiers. Right, right. The objective of the film was to convey, if not the exact realistic boots on the ground experience of serving in Vietnam, it definitely wanted to capture, I think, the mood and how it felt to be there. Yeah, this is a this is a very liquid movie and it and it's hard to nail down any one aspect of it, but you know, without without depicting any real people, without depicting any real events. It really did touch on PTSD and drug addiction and despair and nihilism and just a lot of the kind of and uh, jingoism and massacre and moral failings and ethical corruption and all of the negative things that we might feel about the Vietnam War, I think are up on display in this movie. And it makes you really think that coming out of the war in Vietnam, that no future really is possible. Like, it must have felt like the end of the world being in that place in that time. And yes, there's the the ambition of being able to adapt Heart of Darkness to the big screen, which is something that even Orson Welles wasn't successfully able to do. But I really think that the the meat and potatoes of the objective is that examination of the war in Vietnam and to put it on display for people in the least pretty terms possible. Possibly to make an anti-war film, but just to put that feeling up there. Was it on target? I'm not sure that it was. If the I, you know we've talked about this a lot, and can you make an anti-war film? If that was the objective, I don't know that it was fully on target because this movie fills me with a certain amount of bloodlust that I am not comfortable with. Willard is a character that you're supposed to be like, he's the window for the viewer into the movie. You're supposed to see things through his eyes and really identify with this character. It's one of the reasons why they, like we said, they went with Martin Sheen instead of Harvey Keitel because he's a better, he's a better doorway in for the audience. And I walk through that door and just like, come on in and have a seat and like, let me, I I identify way too strongly with the Willard character in a lot of respects. And I don't love that about me, but understandable as much as it does depict how horrible an experience that is and how it does feel like the entirety of the world is just crashing down and ending on you. I still think there's too much of the... Flying choppers in playing Ride of the Valkyrie to there's a lot of red meat in this movie. There's a lot of red meat in the movie, and it's not just the water buffalo at the end. There's just peppered throughout, there's a lot of red meat. So if if the idea was to deter this kind of thing from happening again, I see it, I get it, and I think it was done well, but I don't know that it actually fulfilled the objective that it meant to. And did I like it? Jesus fucking Christ. I don't. Yeah. Yes. 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 <laughs> um, it's a really good movie. It's a really well constructed 
again, like the sound and the cinematography make this movie, you know, and I didn't really appreciate it the first time I watched it because it was on VHS. <laughs> you know, it was like that just doesn't do the job. But I remember listening to like a Dennis Leary stand up routine where he talks about how he got this great new surround sound and a great new television. And he was like, first thing I'm going to watch is fucking apocalypse now. And I was like, huh, that's a weird choice. I saw that. It didn't strike me. Like now I have the nice setup with the 4K and the surround sound. And I was like, holy shit, this is amazing. Who'd have thought the VHS would have been helping all these filmmakers in the future? Just like, just wait. People are going to watch this for 30 years and wear out their tapes. And then you're going to put out this badass shit in people's minds right? and be blown. Right? And everybody's going to love you. But yes, no, I liked it. It is so far from a perfect movie. There's so many problems with it. There's so many things that like for everything that's done perfectly, there's other things that are just done kind of, kind of poorly. But for all of that, I can't think of anything that I would necessarily change. Even Brando. I tried picturing somebody else in that role. And I, I can't even picture this movie existing without that man giving that performance. I'm sure there's a, there's a different universe where that happened. But I don't know if it would work as well as this one does. And I think that is everything that I have to say on the subject. Dan? Just a side note, since the character in the book is seven foot tall and basically dying and extremely skinny like his ribs are showing, I think Kevin Peter Hall would have been a better choice for Kurt. <laughs> since this does give me some Predator vibes at times. Yeah, totes. Totes, man. This is one where I don't know if the objective eventually became too overwhelming and big to corral for the director. Or whether it's just the nature of making this film in particular that ended up going that way. But I get this distinct feeling that this film fits in one of those special categories where it got bigger than the sum of its parts. And I don't think any one person, including the director, knew exactly what they had when they still had reels and reels and reels of negative, you know, like the original film before it was edited, before they had put it all together. Yeah, there was over a million feet of film to edit for this. So I think Coppola took a long journey up his own river, so to speak, to discover what he was going to end up with after all these battles and all these months and like fighting for helicopters and fighting for this and that and fighting with Brand. It's just so much conflict in the making of this film. So I think he started off by wanting to make a Vietnam War film based a lot on the feel and concepts of Conrad's book, Heart of Darkness, with some of the current sentiment and the anti-war feeling and all of that, but mostly in its delivery of something that feels a little bit like a dream or a nightmare and kind of surreal. I think there's a lot of that going on, and the book isn't quite as ethereal but you still get a lot of metaphor and describing what they see in the jungle, natives popping in and out from this boat. It has a very other dimensional kind of feel to it. So it makes sense that to me, not everything about this film completely makes sense, but I'm also like, yeah, but it's a little bit dream logic too. And I'm kind of okay with that because the visuals are really telling a lot of the story here. There's a lot of crazy in this movie. Kilgore's character, complete nut job. Clearly a sociopath in like another career field. <laughs> he just ended up being in a career field where he gets to command helicopters and go blow up villages. Willard, 
kind of unknown, clearly a bit impacted by PTSD and his work in the special forces and killing people. But it's not, despite the voiceover, it's not always clear to me what he's thinking, how he's being affected by his background, etc. So in some ways, it is trying to deliver this feeling of the Vietnam War and the disillusionment that the American public went through in terms of what we were doing in Cambodia and the actual goals of the war. I mean, again, you, you really, you literally see a picture of Westmoreland in this shaking Kurtz's hand. And Westmoreland was kind of famously the general that was pushing the whole stack the bodies up strategy, which was not doing anything good for anyone in the Vietnam War. So it encompasses a little bit of the futile nature of the conflict, and I think delivers some cynicism on the future of the U.S. and the future of our role in the world and our wars through some of the atrocities that you see and just the bleakness that the film delivers. I don't know if I came up with a concise objective there, but <laughs> somehow I do think it was on target, but a lot of it is sort of you landed in the right spot despite all these huge problems and despite Brando and despite, you know, all these fights that Coppola had to fight and the fact that, you know, you had to pull money from every which corner, etc. And I think in the end, I mean, we talked about it earlier. He described it as the Vietnam War because making the film seemed like such a war to him. So, yeah, I don't think you always know what you have. But clearly, it took a lot of skill from the cinematographer, the director, all the writers involved, even Brando. It's undeniable that he has a lot of skill as an actor, despite the controversy behind the performance. I'll end my breakdown with this thought, since we don't have the time to get into all the intricacies of the book. I thought it was interesting that the line from the end of the film, when Kurtz is killed, that line is from the book. But it carries a different impact in the book because Kurtz is sick and dying from when they find him until he finally takes his last breath on the, on the boat. And so he's not reacting to someone murdering him, nor was anyone ever coming to murder him. And the way Conrad talks about it in that scene is he's describing how meeting death is just another journey and you have to kind of take a step into the void and it's very existential, very beautiful in a dark way. And so it's clear that Kurtz is saying the horror, the horror in the book just to what he's facing in the moment that he's dying. And so it's ambiguous because you're not 100% sure what he is in horror of and what he fears in that moment, but you know it's directly related to his death. So it's like, it's a little more specific in the book. In the film, you have the whole, I mean, the whole last act with Willard emerging out of the water with the camouflage paint is such, such great shots. And it's the US government in some ways coming to kill Kurtz. That's who Willard is representing at that time. So it's kind of this righteous murder. The juxtaposition with the buffalo, I don't know if they're trying to say that's any more righteous, but it's certainly a cultural ritual and, you know, it's sacrificial in nature. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's all those comparisons to Kurtz being sacrificed. So now what is the horror line about? Is it about just the general horror and absurdity of the Vietnam War? Is it the absurdity of his killing and the way he was killed? Kind of like, man, I've been killing people for the military forever, and now they send someone to kill me? Like, what the hell? Or is it more subjective and simply 
Kurt's waking up from the sort of waking nightmare that he's been in and waking up to the reality that he gets to leave it all behind and move on. I don't know. I think both endings are ambiguous. It's just more vague in the film exactly what he's referencing. And that, I think, is a good example of how they adapted this book to the film. You end up left with that same feeling of sort of nihilistic existentialism. I'm not really sure what the meaning of this is, but it's pretty profound and it is dark. And that's kind of how I felt from the ending of both things. Again, I would cut a little, I would trim a little extra off of the ending for me personally. And yeah, I really like this film. It is very clearly like a painting. This film is a work of art and it is not to be a hundred percent understood beat for beat as far as I'm concerned. Like I'm not mad that I can't get with some of uh, the performance of chef in certain scenes or I'm not really sure how realistic the military stuff is or like could Kilgore possibly be a real character like it's so outlandish doesn't really matter because I think it delivers the feeling that it's going for really well and I appreciate that aspect of it and clearly it meant a lot to everyone that worked on it so I do really like it I gotta be in the right mood to watch it definitely the 4k transfer of the director's cut is phenomenal watch Hearts of Darkness the documentary making of Highly recommend. Pretty exceptional film and a big part of cinema history, which is why I'm glad that the audience picked this one and we could talk about it. You should also watch the Animaniacs episode. (laughs) I think you guys have said a lot about what I, that I feel as well. I think the objective of this film changed a lot over time. Like I talked about in my mission briefing, it started as an idea that John Milius got from his uh, screenwriting professor that then morphed into this monstrous project that was almost $50 million by all, all said and done. Probably more than that once you take into consideration the costs of doing the two full-on edits that Coppola did later. You know, the the pain and suffering that everybody who was at this shoot went through But I think overall, it was to tell a story about Vietnam that would be both a metaphor and in some ways very literal about the kind of things that these men had gone through. It was about adapting Heart of Darkness and all of the complex ideas in that Conrad story to relate to Vietnam, because I think there are a lot of relatable moments I think overall, Coppola's biggest goal was to make something uh, that spoke to people. Because I think that's generally Coppola's thing. Like, as directors often have a lot of different reasons for why they make movies. But Coppola is very invested in making his audience feel things and understand his characters and uh, kind of become disarmed as an audience. Like, you are supposed to be in the inner circle of these people You are not on the outside. Like, we are supposed to be there with Kurtz and Willard not watching from afar. And was it on target? Mm -hmm. Yes and no. I think this is one where the shot was like, I don't know, like 20 years (laughs) long. (laughs) Because, you know, the first screening of this, like I talked about, was at Cannes in 1979. And it was unfinished. It was three hours long. Like, the people who saw that cut are the only fucking people who saw that cut. 
that cut was never shown again because it Jesus. was it was Coppola's like, all right, well, let's cobble it together as fast as we can and go. Like it was finished, you know, hours before it was shown. Little quick side note on the cuts. There is, I don't think this exists, but they had a work print version at one point and it was all Doors music. And I'm like, I kind of want to see that. I, oh, man. I would. That <laughs> I would definitely want to watch that. Perfection. You know, and, and there are so many more cuts than we've seen because Coppola, this is like Tolkien level going back and like changing the cut from like we talked about having that uh final moment where they blow up all the sets like that was in the in theaters for a while and then he heard how people were reacting to it It was like oh no we got to cut that out i don't want people thinking that like this was such a director reacting to audiences by changing his film which is not something you see a lot and it's never stopped no he's still he's still fucking doing it like which, hey, and, and Tolkien did it up till the very end of his life. There are so many versions of Lord of the Rings where he went in and changed a sentence here and there or adjusted words just because he felt it would be more accurate. And I think that's kind of what Coppola is going for, is he's trying to get to this ephemeral idea of what Apocalypse Now should be and what it should inspire in people, like the emotions it should inspire. And he's still trying to get there. And I mean, as all artists know... At some point, buddy, you got to put the pen down or the clay or the brush or whatever and just let it be what it is. And I find something slightly endearing about Coppola and the fact that he's like, no, I got to keep I got to keep working on it, guys. Just just let me do it. I can make it perfect. I can make it perfect. And I am as an artist myself. I'm like, honey, no, no art is perfect. Perfection is the enemy of completion. <laughs> so I think the target kind of changed throughout the years and i think now it hits it fucking square on even if you're watching you know redux or something i think it hits today's audiences a lot more to the intentions that they were that they had when they made the film than it did at the time because i think people were just so caught up in like oh this is poetry we've heard before like this is all so trite and now you know people know people may or may not know who t.s Eliot is but most people have no fucking idea that he was a poet or what he wrote. So it's changed over time. So I think now, like I said, it's much more on target. So I like it. I think this is one of those movies that's kind of above liking or not liking. It's something I can appreciate because it is so credibly brutal and so personal. You know, like a lot of war movies, you feel very detached watching them. You can feel emotional about them, but you don't feel like you're in it there with them in the moment. Whereas this, you can really empathize with how Willard is feeling throughout the film as he learns more and more about Kurtz and realizes what he's going to have to do in the reality of the moment. Like he goes in knowing he's going to kill this guy, but there's knowing you're going to kill someone. And then there's the reality of taking it from step one to step 20 of completion where the man is dead. And that's a huge journey to take. And we kind of get to see Willard go from conceptualizing this to pulling it off. And I don't know if I like it, but I really respect it. And I'm, I might even go watch Redux just to see what the fuck all the fuss is about. But I'm definitely going to watch the final cut. So... Liking isn't really important in this instance. I think I have a lot of respect and I can appreciate this film for what it is. All right. What are we doing next? Next, 
is a Liam pick. Yeah. So next up we have, uh, uh, guys, it's another movie I grew up watching. Uh, this one is from 1955. It is based on a it stage play starring Henry Fonda, James Cagney, William Powell, and uh, a very young Jack Lemmon. Uh, this is Ooh. Mr. Roberts. Oh, this is going to be good. It's, it's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. Good discussion, I think. And it's kind of a lighter-ish Navy comedy. It is a comedy. It is a it's okay. a World War II service comedy about a Navy supply boat that is stuck in the safe area of the Pacific under the command of a very Captain Queeg like mm. James Cagney. Oh, and Henry Fonda plays Mister Roberts, and he just wants to get to the war before it ends, and he is stuck on a boat that is nowhere near the war anywhere near the war ever and that's the movie all right thanks everyone for joining us and listening thank you for participating in the listener polls we put that out in our facebook group at danger close podcast discussion group on facebook and you can participate in all that and let us know what movie you would like to see us cover next we'll see you guys on the next one bye bye this is the end Beautiful friend This is the end My only friend The end Of our elaborate plans The end Of everything that stands The end No safety